Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. He left the National Hockey League for the greener pastures of the upstart World Hockey Association. He is one of the few to have played in the WHA for its entire existence. And when all was said and done, Andre Lacroix wound up being the WHA's all-time leading scorer. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about leaving the NHL, what life was like in the WHA, and a whole lot more with WHA Hall of Famer Andre Lacroix. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 102, Andre Lacroix. And I'm really excited to bring this podcast to you today because Andre is here to talk with us. What a special opportunity. A little late to celebrate 100 episodes. I'd hope to make episode 100 really special, but what the heck? I'm two episodes late, and I have that superstar with me today, Andre Lacroix. Truly a special talent on the ice and off the ice with everything he's done He's definitely a special person, too. Andre had a wonderful junior career and quickly caught the eyes of scouts and coaches. And really, the only knock against him was his size. At the height of his career, he was just 5'8 and 175 pounds. But man, could he skate. A center who always knew where his wingers were when Andre was at his best with teams like the Philadelphia Blazers, the New York Golden Blades, and the San Diego Mariners, all WHA franchises, he piled up the assists. In fact, twice he led the WHA in assists. Twice he led the league in scoring. And in the 1974 75 season for San Diego, he reached one of his biggest goals, 100 assists in a season. When he recorded a career-high 106 to go along with 41 goals for a league-leading 147 points. Man, that's huge. 
Andre came from a large family. He was the youngest of 14 children. His parents always made sure he was provided for. In fact, as you might imagine, his father had to work hard in order to support such a large family, and he didn't get to see his son play that often. But Andre's father always kept tabs on him and made sure to voice his opinion, if needed, to make sure Andre was given a fair shot at everything. His mother always made sure there was enough food on the table for Andre, and Andre's sister, I hope I get this right, Pirette, was always there when Andre needed anything. A big family, but a family that always took care of its own. Much of this is captured in Andre's book, After the Second Snowfall, My Life On and Off the Ice. It's really a fun book to read. Short chapters with great stories. I encourage any fan of hockey or sports in general to pick up a copy today. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And if you go to my website, sportsfh.com, that's sportsfh.com, and send me a note, I will share with you how to get an autographed copy of the book straight from Andre himself. Again, go to sportsfh.com, fill out the contact page, and send me a note, and I will let you know how to get an autographed copy. Speaking of sportsfh.com, I encourage everyone to check it out today. I've done a little reformatting and now I make it much easier for you to get in contact with me. And new to the site is Ask a Question. If you want to ask a question, just click that tab and you'll see who I'm going to be talking about in upcoming episodes and you can submit a question. It's a fun way to participate in a future episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes. Again, that's sportsfh.com. As always, please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Follow the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. As always, thank you for your support. So, let's get moving along with today's show and my special guest, WHA Hall of Fame center, Andre LaCroix. And now joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes is WHA Hall of Famer himself, Andre LaCroix. Andre, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Warren. I'm happy to be here. Uh, This is awesome. I am just so thrilled. Um, I'm a big hockey fan. I know a lot about your career. And I got to tell you, like I said, a big thrill to have you here. Thank you so much. So let's jump right in. What prompted you? Why did you decide to write a book? And where did the name come from after the second snowfall, my life on and off the ice? That's a great question. Um, I decided to write a book because I don't read hockey books. 
And the reason I don't read a hockey book, Warren, is very simple because if you want to look at someone's stats, you could look online and find all the stats. And I don't really care the fact that the Flyers maybe beat the Bruins in the fifth game of a Stanley Cup playoff. Um, I thought I had a unique situation because being the youngest of 14 children, seven boys, seven boys, seven <laughs> girls, I said, the only one that played hockey in my family, I said, I want to talk about things that have never been written. I said, I want to talk about all the contracts that I signed. I want to talk about the money that I made playing junior and pros. And also, I want to talk about, in the fact, when I played junior, there, I won the Red Chelsea Trophy two years in a row, which I think only like maybe five of us have done that. Um, I had a very successful youth career, basically at the midget level. I played midget with guys that were two, three years older than I was. And we won three championships in a row, which never happened. And the reason I came up with the title of the book is a friend of mine, I was thinking about, should I call it the magician? Should I call it all kinds of names? And this, then I was telling him the story when I grew up. I never played indoor hockey till I was 13 years old. And I said, we had a rink in the schoolyard and we used to go help the brothers build the rink. I was taught by brothers. And we knew in November, late November, when the first snowfall came, the snow would disappear the next two days. But we knew when the second snowfall came down, it was big enough to stay so we could start playing hockey. And that's why I call it after the second snowfall, because that's when I could start playing hockey. Oh, that's fun. That's that's very clever. Very clever. Well, I got to tell you, it's a really terrific book. I love how you structured it. There's another player who I'm sure you're familiar with, Dennis Marook. Yeah. Dennis. I had he on. I had Dennis on a couple years ago. He also wrote a book and it was somewhat structured the same way that you Good. structured yours in that they're not 50-page chapters. They're little nuggets, and it makes it so fun to read a book that way. And I, I got to applaud you. Your book read so easily, so fun, so very interesting, and it's you speaking, and, and it just makes it a great book to read. You know, I'm glad you said that, Warren, that because it's when you said it was me speaking, because I wrote the book. I didn't, I had someone helping me to make sure it was done properly. Sure. But I wrote the book and I want people to read it to say, that sounds like Andre. That sounds like Andre, you know, and that's what I wanted. You know, it's the same thing. You remember in the book when I talk about my, basically when I went to New York and met with those three girls in the office that took me out to lunch, I said, <laughs> I said, I want to talk about that because that's a, that was part of my life, you know? <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that the people knew that how much of an influence my parents were in my in my career. Having nothing, we had nothing, absolutely nothing, to be honest with you. But I wanted to make sure that from the time I started playing hockey to the end of my career, I wanted to make sure that people follow, not my career, but followed André Lacroix through those years. That's what I try to do with the book. And right now, I'm almost finished translating in, in French. Oh, good for because, you. Because uh, they want it available in Quebec. 
And you know, in 2022, Quebec's going to host a 50-year anniversary of the World Hockey Association. And they contacted me to make to see if I would I would come, and they want to make the book a big deal out of the uh, event that day. So that's why I translate the book. And I did the same thing in French. I'll tell you what, it took me longer in French than I did in English. <laughs> well, I got to be honest with you. When I contacted you and, you know, we were exchanging notes through yeah. email, I thought to myself, oh, boy, I hope. Andre didn't write this book in French and have it translated <laughs> to English because this will be one heck of an interview if that's the way it went. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, no. Well, we're going to talk, we're going to hit on certain points about the book and then, of course, about your career. Um, I didn't, I'm not going to talk about everything in your book. I don't want to give it all no, away. No, 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 no. Otherwise, like, the, the story about those three women. Otherwise, there's no point in anybody buying. No, them. no. We need to talk. We need to talk about things that people have not read about me. Yeah. Yeah. In hockey. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the first question I have, though, is about your career. And I think it's really a good place to start because you must have a very, I know you do, you have a very unique perspective on this. You started your career in the NHL with the Philadelphia Flyers. And then um, you went to a team called the Philadelphia, well, and then you were traded to Chicago to the Blackhawks. And then you started your career in the WHA, the first year that the WHA was in existence with the Philadelphia Blazers. What I'd like to first know is, how did the quality of play differ between the two leagues? At the start, the quality was different to the fact that I think a lot of teams in the WHA at the time, they wanted to make sure they had maybe a few guys that could score goals, but also a few guys that could fight. Because then you could draw people into the game. If you didn't win, you knew there were going to be fights. If there was no fight, then maybe you won. You were winning the game. So the game, I think, I think the game was a lot more physical in the WHA then than it was in the mm -hmm. NHL, which made it a lot more difficult for a player like me, who was a finesse player, to play the game. To be honest with you, you know. But um, to me, that's. That was the best thing that ever happened to me was the WHA. Because when I got traded to Chicago, Warren, I was traded there to play with Bobby Hall. And Bobby won the greatest ever. And as soon as I got to Chicago, a few guys I knew came to me and said, Andre, I know why they brought you here, but don't feel bad if it doesn't work because he tried everybody to play with Bobby. It didn't work. And the reason it didn't work, because I grew up where both my left winger and my right winger were getting a lot of points, a lot of goals. That was my role as a center. I was a quarterback. And I said, when I got to Chicago, Bobby was all over the place. And Chico Mackey was the other winger. But in Chicago, they knew that if you feed Bobby, Bobby will score 50 goals. Stan Mikita will win the scoring title. So when Esposito will get a bunch of shutout, then they'll get 20,000 people at the game. That's it. You know, to me, I thought that 
you didn't have to coach much because Chicago ended up being in a division with the expansion team. So they knew by December they were going to finish in first place. So when I first started playing with Bobby, I was kind of, they didn't tell me, but I knew I had to look for him because he was God in Chicago. I tell people, I said, Bobby was as popular in Chicago as Michael Jordan was. As popular oh, as bet. Michael Jordan was. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and one of the best guys that you want to play with and you want to be friends with. And I'll tell you a story about that because as big as he was. And, but I had to change my style of game. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that because people knew they didn't have to watch Bobby. They just had to watch me because they knew that Chico Mackey wouldn't score too many goals. He was a defensive player. So we had a hard time communicating with each other. The reason Bobby played well with the two Swedes in Winnipeg, because the three of them were playing the same style of game. And that's why they did very well. But you need to have the three guys that do that. You cannot have just two guys that do that. And that's why I, I, I had a terrible year in Chicago. I was not happy. Uh, I didn't think that I would have, in a way, as well, as much as I appreciate playing with Bobby, I wish I would have played with somebody else and played my game, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Sure. But to show you how big he was, Warren, at one point during the season, I said to Bobby, I said, Bobby, I have a house in Philadelphia. And I said, I have about an acre of grass. And I said, I need a tractor. Because if you need something, you ask Bobby, Bobby gets it for you. So I said, do you know anybody? He said, well, if, you, if you're looking for a lawnmower, I could get you a lawnmower by tractor, you know. So at the end of the season, I go home. I'm in the backyard cutting the grass. I went to Sears and I found one in the, you know, if they're damaged a little bit, you get a good a discount. So I found yeah. one of those. So I'm cutting the grass. And at one point, my wife said, Andre, Bobby, I was on the phone for you. He's in Chicago. I'm in Philadelphia. He said, did you find a tractor? He remembered. Oh. That's how Bobby was. Very I mean, nice. He was such an ambassador for hockey. You know, he, uh, he would, and let's face it, maybe we went to see Bobby all play. Sure, sure. The, 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 the golden jet. The golden jet, yeah. And Dennis, his brother, was completely different. As good as he was, Dennis, Dennis, Dennis didn't want the publicity. And I mm -hmm. tell people, one of the best speakers in the world is Dennis Hall. Really? And, oh, if anybody was looking for someone to, the, you know, for an engagement, to do a speaking engagement, Dennis was the best. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I, I've always thought about having Dennis on Sports Forgotten Heroes because everybody knows Bobby. Right. Everybody knows Brett. And Dennis, he's like the third hole. He sort of gets lost in there, but he, he was, was an all-star. He was a yeah. terrific player. Absolutely, yeah. And he was good. I mean, you know, he played with Stan Mikita, which was great. Stan just feed, feed him the puck, and there it goes, you know. So no, Dennis was a very and a great guy too, but very quiet compared to Bobby. Mm. Bobby will Bobby never refused an autograph, and it's like you said, Dennis was the third guy. They didn't want Dennis; they wanted Bobby. So Dennis was happy; he just left the building, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get back to the to the game and the WHA. A couple of more comparisons here. Um, I would imagine one of the other differences between the World Hockey Association and the National Hockey League, especially in the early going, must have been the depth on the benches. The NHL must have had 
more depth, more good players on the roster as a whole, as opposed to the players that were on the WHA. Maybe your first line could compete with NHL first lines, but that second and third line might have been where a lot of the differences were made. I agree with you there. But also, I think a point needs to be made that a lot of superstar in the NHL came from the WHA. Mm. Okay? Gretzky, Messier, sure. all these guys, they all came from all, – all the players that have been in Edmonton basically came from the WHA. Okay? Wayne Stout, so, another big-time scorer. Oh, yeah, big time. You know, And every team basically had one of those players that was – who was a star on their team, but because the NHL didn't think that WHA would last, they didn't want to pay them. Listen, when I played in Chicago, Warren, my last year, thank God I was on my last year of my contract, I was making $31,000 a year. I get a phone call from the owner of the Blazers in Philadelphia. He said, Andre, I've watched you for the Flyers for three years. I want you to come back to Philadelphia. We just got a franchise. He said, I don't have any idea what you're making. We said, double your salary and give you a five-year deal. I said, I'm gone. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, don't forget, a lot of players, and I'm talking about the Flyers because that's why I started. A lot of players in Philadelphia, like Dave Schultz, McLeish, a lot of those guys, if it was not for the WHA, they might still be in the in American Hockey League. Yeah. She, so the WHA opened the doors for a lot of minor league players to come up to the WHA and also the NHL. But you brought up a good point. I didn't think I didn't think goaltending was that much different in the two oh, leagues. Okay. To be honest with you, I thought I thought the good point that you brought up is that I think the first line on almost every team in the WHA could have played in the NHL, but also a lot of third line player in a or in the NHL would have been second or third line player in the WHA. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing, um, and you tell a funny story, might not have been funny when it happened, but you tell a funny story about uh, your first year in Philly with the Blazers and when the Zamboni came out on the ice at the convention center, I believe. Talk to me about the arenas the atmosphere. I mean, you played for the Flyers in 71. You had a good season scoring 20 goals and you had 22 assists. And two years later, you're with the Philadelphia Blazers and you win what's called the Bill Hunter Trophy as the top scorer in the league with 50 goals and 74 assists. The Flyers are playing at the famous Spectrum. The Blazers are playing at the convention center or the Civic Center. How did the atmosphere differ in in the arenas? And tell us about the ice at the Civic Center. Well, it, it was day and night. Day and night. Let's face it, when I was with the Flyers, we we won game two to one, three to one, three to two, because we had probably two of the best goaltenders in the National Hockey League at the time with Bernie and Dougie, Favell and Bernie Perron. When I was with the Flyers, I led the team in scoring the three years I was there, and I had like 45, 57 points every year. 
and I was leading the team in scoring. Oh, I didn't know that. that oh, you yeah. Were actually- yeah. Wow. Because the game was so low scoring that, you know, so I I remember, I think I had 57 points or something like that. But every year that I played, I, I led the team in scoring. And, but we, we had a defensive team. When we played at the Civic Center, it was just a terrible place to play hockey. <laughs> just a terrible place to play hockey. And the fans were not into it. I think the fans came in to see what it was like. I don't think they came in as Blazers fans to start with. I think they came in as hockey fans, and Philadelphia was a big hockey town. And in those days, you couldn't get a ticket to the Flyers either. So because they sold out all the time, so might as well go see the Blazers if you can get to the Flyers. And the reason we never played the descent at the, at the spectrum because the, the Flyers wouldn't give us any dates. Sure. Which they don't blame them, you know. Yeah. So, and let's face it, with the experience that we had at our opening game, with the game being canceled, you know, that didn't help the situation either. Uh, on our first game, we had, they give all the people a nice orange puck with the logo on it. Beautiful puck, heavy. But they should have waited till after the game to give it to the people because as soon as they give them the puck and then the Zamboni went on the ice and pulled a big thing of ice and we couldn't play. They had to cancel the game. Didn't so the ice Derek Sanderson, did, a big chunk of ice. When he tried to get off the ice, he had to lift the back of the Zamboni. As he lifted the back, a big chunk of ice came up. <laughs> so they had to cancel the game. So now they asked Derek Sanderson to take the microphone and say, we're sorry, da, da, da. And people start throwing pucks at him on the ice. <laughs> and we're running into the locker room to be honest with you, to hide, you know. And Derek had rented the Rolls Royce, you know, because he was Derek, you know. Yeah. Well, somebody yeah, knew man. that was his car. And after the game, some fans walked by his car and put a big scratch on his door, oh. you know. <laughs> so that was our initiation of hockey in the WH in Philadelphia. Sure. Well, you know, one of the other things I want to talk to you about, and we're going to get to it, is is your contracts and how you negotiated yes. and all that. We're going to get to that. But I think one of the other things – um, you know, the WHA was around for seven or eight years. Yep. And um, you jumped around a lot. Yes. Um, actually, your whole career, you spent your first four years was with the Flyers. And then you spent a year with the Blackhawks. Then one year with the Philadelphia Blazers. Then one year with the New York Golden Blades, the Jersey Knights, a combination <laughs> there. And then they moved to become the San Diego Mariners, and you spent three years with the Mariners. Then you went to Houston to play for the Arrows, and then you played with the New England Whalers, and they were the New England Whalers when they were in the WHA, but when they moved to the NHL the next year, you were with them as the Hartford Whalers. Why did you jump around so much? And how difficult is that for a player really um, to not know where they're going to be year in and year out? Well, that was the beauty of negotiating my own contract. Because one of the big clauses I had in my contract was that if the team moves, 
or if the team is sold, I become a free agent. Every year that I sign a contract, Warren, I really believe I was going to finish my career there. When I played for the Flyers, I said, I'm, going to, I'm a Flyer for life. When I got traded, I was very disappointed. You know, then I got traded to Chicago. I said, not a bad place to play hockey. And I said, I wouldn't mind finishing my career in Chicago. Then I was not happy. So when the WG came in and I signed a five-year deal with a, a clause, I had a lot of clause, but one of them was a free agency. I've only been traded once in my whole career. And it Amazing. was for the, for the Flyers to the Blackhawks. So I went from the Chicago Blackhawks to the Blazers. And when the Blazers moved to Vancouver, I became a free agent because he moved the team to Vancouver. Then the WHA tried to make a big deal out of the fact that I was traded to New York for Ronnie Ward who went to Vancouver. And I made a point of saying, no, I was not. I was a free agent. I decided to go to New York. You couldn't trade me. I could have gone anywhere. The reason I went to New York, because I figured that there has to be a team in New York for the WHA to survive. So I buy a house in West Orange, New Jersey. I still had my house in Philadelphia. In October, we go for practice, and the locker room is locked. The equipment is gone. Okay, they say, now you're going to play in New Jersey. Now I have a house that I only moved in two months, okay? So we moved to New Jersey, and the fact that the team moved to New Jersey, I became a free agent again. And I didn't want to leave my teammates alone. So I moved to New Jersey knowing at the end of the season I would be a free agent. So I went to New Jersey. Then afterwards. They said, okay, now we the team's not going to stay there. And there's a guy from Baltimore that got a franchise, and he was going to move it to Baltimore. And he couldn't find a rink to play in Baltimore. So he got a rink in San Diego. I said, what a place to play hockey, you know? <laughs> best, best city in the world. So I go to San Diego, and I decided, so I'm going to rent for two years. I'm not buying anymore. I rent for two years. Then Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, buys a team. So I said, at the time, in 1974, Ray Kroc was worth $500 million. Wow. So Buzzy Bavese, who you must know, was the manager of the baseball team. I get a phone call in Philadelphia. Buzzy said, I want you to come to San Diego. He said, uh, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. That was his exact word. So I fly to San Diego, meet with Buzzy, and he twice offered me, twice low ball me on a contract. And I said, I don't think so. I said, I need to call my lawyer. He said, wait, wait, sit down. Okay. First, he started at 150. So a couple of times I get ready to get up to so call my attorney. And he said to me, he said, no, when I pay my ball players that kind of money, they don't get bonuses. And I said, well, that's why I play hockey. I don't play baseball. That's why I told him. <laughs> because when I negotiated with him, one of the things I tried to get was a McDonald's franchise. And he said, Mr. Quark will not negotiate business with hockey. He said, that's why Reggie Jackson, he was a free agent with the Yankees, was negotiating with San Diego, and he wanted the McDonald franchise. And he said, no, that's why Reggie Jackson didn't play for San Diego. Oh, so I said, okay. So the, his last offer, he started at 150. His last offer was 175. He said, okay. I said, that sounds good, but I suddenly talked to my lawyer. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll give you $175 a year for six years with a personal guarantee from Mr. Kroc. I wow. said, I said, we have a deal. 
but I need to call my attorney, but we have a deal. So I called my attorney. I said, are you sitting down? You know, and I told him about the deal. Then I buy a house, beautiful house, put a pool in. Okay. A year later, Quack decided he didn't want hockey anymore. I ended up renting my house to a football player from the Charger because I couldn't sell it because it was brand new. Then I said, where am I going now? I'm still a free agent. And I said, Houston had a lot of success. I said, Bill Deneen, I love Bill Deneen, great coach. And I said, the oil company might as well go to Houston. I play for Bill. So I go to Houston, and I feel Houston can be my last stop as a free agent. Then I bought a house in Houston. A year later, I still <laughs> had my house in Philly and my house in San Diego. And a year later, Warren, Houston folds. I said, where am I going now? <laughs> then I said, there were not too many teams that were stable at the time. Hartford was one of them because the insurance company. So I said, Howard Baldwin was the, one of the owners with the insurance company. And Howard Baldwin and I were with the Flyers at the same time. Howard was the ticket manager for the Flyers when I played there. So he and I knew each other very well. Mm -hmm. So I decided as a free agent again to go to Hartford. And that's why I finished my career. But uh, that's why I make a point of saying, telling people, I said, what I did two years ago, you're going to like this. I said, I don't want people to think that I, I put on so many teams because I was a bad apple. You know, that I said, I want to know what, why I, I moved on so much. So I had key chains made up with each team I played for with my oh. picture on it. In the back, it has my number. And below the keychain, and I, I had a number seven made out of wood, and I hung all the keychain on the on the number seven, and below each keychain it says sign as free agent with so and so, sign as free agent with so and so. Oh. So I didn't want people to think traded to so and so, traded. I didn't want people to think that. Yeah. So yeah, I understand. I I'm telling you, Mark. I every. Every year that I played, I said, I hope this is my because I had two young kids at the time too. Sure. That must make it even more. You know, difficult. thank God they were not in school yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the overarching themes in your book, and you just went through it, is that you bought a house in almost every city that you played. I, did. I should have been in real estate. Yeah. Well, you were sort of it was sort of like a jinx. And at one point you had a teammate, I think it was with uh Hartford or New England, said to you. Don't buy a house. Rick Tell Lee. me about that. Ricky Lee. Yeah. He said, don't buy a house. We, no. we Yeah. <laughs> Andre, let's go back. Let's go back to how it all started for you. Yeah. Tell us how you were introduced to the game of hockey and how you wound up on the midget team with the older guys when you were just 13. Tell us about your formative years as a hockey player. You know it's funny because I found out about uh, two years ago, I went back to Quebec. They had an award for me there. And I, I had a great opportunity at dinner with the coach that coached me at the midget level. And then he said to me, so I need to tell you a story that you probably don't even know. See, my dad was working so hard. He, he, his relaxation was maybe on Sunday to come watch me play. And, and he said, your dad came to me one time and I don't know how my dad found the time to do that. He went to see the coach and he said, coach, he said, uh, I had not seen my son play hockey, but sometimes somebody told me he was a pretty good hockey player. 
And I know you're putting a team together, a special team. You might want to look at them. That's how the coach found me because my dad said, I never saw him play. You might want to have a look at him. And then when I went to try out, I could see these guys like six foot, five eleven. You know, I'm like five eight. Okay. <laughs> at the time I was probably 150 pounds, you know. <laughs> and I try out, I said, maybe the coach is keeping me here because he needs enough players to scrimmage or something, you know. But he, I made the team. And then we won three provincial championships. That never happened before, never happened since. And what happened is they gave us a trophy and they gave us a replica and then they kept the big trophy. And the third year that we won, the coach said, I'm keeping that trophy, the big one, you know. <laughs> and then they kept the big trophy. And then I said to him years and years later, I said to him, I said, coach, I said, if you get tired of it, I would love to have it, you know. At one point, my nephew lives in Quebec. And at the time I was living in Philadelphia, he, um, he came and... Uh, for a visit, he bought me the, the original trophy plus a replica. The coach had given it to him to give me. So I still had them. It's in my in my my office, and I look at it every day. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, one of the other things uh, you talk about, if somebody says to you, Andre, what's the greatest achievement in the history of your hockey career? I think some people would be very surprise to hear what your answer is. Tell us, what is the greatest achievement of your hockey career? There's two. The first one is a three years midget. Yes. That's my first one. Yes. The second one is I was very proud. To me, an assist was more important than a goal, to be honest with you. Okay, I was fortunate enough that one year was named the French Canadian Athlete of the Year. I beat Guy Lafleur, Marcel Dion, and that's another story because the people—that's a, a different story. It, rigged. it was rigged the first time. For me, it, it was, was rigged. That's it was right. Rigged. Yes, right. So, but the second most important for me in hockey was the year that in 1974, the year that I won the French Canadian Athlete of the Year. But that—that that it's when I had 106 assists in one season. Because right, yeah, I'm me, looking at it. In 1974-75, your first year with the San Diego Mariners, yep. you scored 41 goals and added 106 assists. Wow. You know, Warren, to me, I look at it as if you get 100 assists in one season, it's like batting 400 in baseball. Wow, that's a good comparison. You know, and you know, there's only four hockey players in the history of pro hockey that have had at least 100 assists in one season. Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, and I. Wow, that's awesome. So We're the only four. Wow, that's 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 incredibly impressive, Andre. I mean, you know, some you had 106 assists. There are players that, uh, you know, they don't get 106 points in a year right. on, on a good year. And you had 106 assists. And – you also, you know, it's when you combine your um, your total scoring numbers um, and the amount of assists that you had for your career, it's, uh, you know, you, you certainly put up in a heck of a lot of assists. Well, one, another reason I'm, I'm very proud of what I've accomplished, 
is the fact that I played on so many teams. You know, a lot of times you get that if you play on one team. But the fact that I had to change city, I had to adjust to different teammates and adjust to the different city. And but I've always not a pride, always had a lot of pride, Warren, because see, when I grew up, everybody told me I was too small, I'll never make it. Everybody was telling me, Andre, and don't I, you could follow your, you know, what you want to do, but don't be upset if you don't make it because you don't have the size. Sure. And I said, if Henry Richard made it, you know, Ralph Baxter made it, a lot of kids made it, you know, I said, I can make it, you know. Right. So I think that that was another thing, too. I, I want to prove the people that they were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things you did early on is the other achievement winning three straight provincial championships as yeah. a youth. And that's a very proud moment for you. I was 13, 14, 15 years old. Exactly. You know, and the nice thing, you know, is that after we won the championship, we had a, uh, like a small party at the school. And one year, Bernie Boom Boom Jeffrey all came in and gave us a trophy and a jacket. You know, that was it. And his son basically came with him. His son must have been five years old at the time. Wow. You know? Yeah. Wow. Well, um, let's 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 keep moving on here. One of the other things that I found interesting, again, you're young, you're learning how to play the game. And, you know, here in the States, I don't think people realize just how big hockey night in Canada is. For you, I guess it could be similar to our Monday night football. Yes. Hockey yes. Night in Canada was just that big. And you actually wrote about that um, listening to Hockey Night in Canada or watching the game on TV was also one of the ways that you learned how to play the game. Yes. Can you talk about that? How watching the game on TV helped That's you a very good question. how to play. Yeah, that's a very good question. See, when I was a kid, when I was 13, even 13, 14 years old, when I watched Hockey Night in Canada, don't forget in, in Canada, if you ask a girl out on a Saturday night, it's to watch a hockey game, you know? <laughs> and, and when I watched the Canadian, because they always played home on Saturday night, Canadians. And I always watched John Belleville was my idol. I always watched the center because that's why I wanted to play. So I didn't watch the hockey game. I watched certain players. That's how I learned to get on my learn my skills. Because I said, "Huh, this is something I could try when I go on the ice on my own." You know, at the outdoor rink. So I watch a hockey game differently than most people, I guess, because people would watch the Canadian win or lose. It didn't matter to me. I just watch individual to learn from them. Interesting. Well, you played, you know, in the midgets and you worked your way up through the different junior leagues and junior B, junior A. You played with the Quebec team. You played yes. with the Montreal team and you had a coach. I hope I say his name right. Coach Cote or Cote? Cote. Coach Cote. He coached me junior B in Quebec. Well, I really found this, this one interesting there were a lot of aspects to the game of hockey that he helped you with becoming a better goal scorer, uh, learning how to, how to win a face off, how to take a face off your skating, how to check, 
how to take a check. Talk to talk to me about how Coach Cote helped you in the development of your game and how seriously you took all this and something about, I believe it was skating blindfolded. Yeah. What happened in practice, he would come to me, and that's why I think he's the best coach I ever had as far as learning the game. He said, okay, he said, he put a bandage over my eyes. I couldn't see anything. <laughs> I had my hockey stick. He gave me a puck. He said, feel the puck now. I said, okay. And now he said, well, you're going to skate around. He said, I'll follow you. And when you get near the boards, I'll say either left or right. That means otherwise you're going to end up in the boards. <laughs> and that was his way of telling me you need to keep your head up when you play hockey. Otherwise, with your size, you're going to get killed. Sure. Makes sense. Okay. So I said, I learned that when I was 15 years old, you know, from him. And then he would say, on face-off, he would say, never put your stick down first. Let's wait to see what the other guy does. Let's see how he sets up. Then dip and talk to your teammates. And another thing he did in the locker room, he made me sit with the two players I played with, which we could talk about. this. So he taught me how to work plays with my teammates when I was 15 years old. He taught me how to stick handle when I was 15 years old. He said, in a warm-up, what's the other goal in a warm-up? Because most of the time in a warm-up, the t- his own teammate will shoot where his weaknesses are. Oh, interesting. So I used to watch the other goalies at 15 years old. So, Warren, the one thing I say all the time, there's no doubt in my mind that God gave me a talent. Because a lot mm-hmm. of things that I learned you can't teach. You either got it or you don't, sure. really. Okay. Sure. And a lot of things that I did when I was 13 playing against 15, 16-year-old kids was because I had the skills to do it. Otherwise, I didn't have the size, obviously. So I had the skills. And I knew I had to concentrate on my skills. So when I used to go to the school rink to play, I used to shovel an area myself because we didn't have Zamboni to clean the rink. And we, I used to shovel an area where he had enough space to skate and shoot the puck and work on certain things on my own. If someone came with me, fine. If not, then I did by myself. Mm-hmm. You know, at 13 years old. Sure. And, and one other comment here um, regarding playing center, that's what you wanted to play. You didn't want yes. to be a goalie. You didn't want to be a defenseman. You didn't want to be a winger. You wanted to be the center. Wow. I want to be the quarterback. I want to be the quarterback. To be honest with you, okay, I want to be, to me, that's why I was so proud of everybody. Like, when I played in San Diego the year, I had like seven, one, uh, 106 assists. I think my left winger had like 41 goals. My right winger had like 45 goals, I believe. And when I played in Philadelphia, Danny Lawson had 67 goals, I believe, but with the Blazers, or 64 goals. And Rick Santes on the other side had like 31 or 40 goals. So, you know, as a center... If you don't, if you get more assists than goal, then you've done your job. Yeah. So people see that must be an excitement when you score 50 goals. I said, not really, because I'm not a 50 goal scorer. <laughs> I'm not. You know, but, I'm but I'm an assist it. guy. But you did it. You had 50 with 74 assists. Yeah. I mean, and that was uh your first year in the but, WHA with the yeah. Blazers. That was awesome. You know, you played with a couple of different junior teams in Quebec, but then you moved on to a a pretty significant junior team as well, the Junior 
Montre- the Montreal Junior Canadiens. Tell us about your experience and how crucial playing for the Junior Canadiens was in your development. So Sam Pollock, living on your own, who are some of the players you played with? And to this day, do you eat, do you ever put chocolate sauce on your ice cream? <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, when I played with Junior Canadian, we had Serge Savard, Yvon Cournoyer, Jacques Lemaire. Wow. I mean, those were my teammates, you know. Wow. And Sammy Pollock was a general manager of the team, and Sammy put some rules in too, and you had to follow the rules. And one of the rules was we had to go to every Montreal Canadian home game on Wednesday and Saturday night if we didn't have games. And what you had to do, you had to sign it to the press gate and you couldn't sign out till the game was over. And when the game was over, you had to be home by 11 because Sammy's right-hand man would call you to make sure you were home. And well, I'll tell you, if you weren't at home... You. That couldn't have been easy for you. Oh, yeah. If you weren't at home, they would send you home. They would send you back to your hometown, to be honest with you. The best thing that happened to me is after the season... I had a good season with Junior Canadians. After the season, I never heard from them. I said, I guess I'm not coming back here next year, you know. And then I found out that Peterborough, who was also owned by the Canadians at the time, you know, the Quebecasers, who owned my rights at the time, said, Peterborough wants you to come for tra- to play with them in Peterborough. Well, I couldn't speak a word of English. Nobody could yeah, speak I was going to say, that's where you really, playing with Peterborough is where you really learned your English. The language. Danny yeah. Grant and Mickey Redmond, I think. Oh, yeah. And I played with two pretty good hockey players, Danny Grant and Mickey Redmond in, in Peterborough. But the nice thing is, let's face it, you're so scrutinized when you play in Montreal. I mean, you have probably 15 reporters every game, okay? When you go to Peterborough, a small town, you're lucky if you have one or two reporters that follow you, you know? And it's, it's just, it was so much fun to play hockey there. To be honest with you, you know, and I had obviously I had my two best years there in Peterborough. Um, let me ask you this: When you were playing with the Junior Canadians, though, that's really I think now I might be wrong. That's really the first time you played in front of very large crowds. Oh, absolutely. What is that like? What is it going from playing in front of a couple of hundred or a couple thousand to playing? in front of 16,000 people. It's got to be a little awe-inspiring. That never bothered me because I never looked at the crowd. Ah. Okay. You see, the, the thing, I was so disciplined when I played hockey, Warren, that my, I, I said, if I let any distraction change my game, I might be gone. So I had to concentrate on what I was doing. I mean, we were getting 15,000 people at the junior game. You know, but wow. it was not a big deal. I was more concerned about Sammy Pollock than I was about the crowd in the in the building. Because if you didn't play well, Sammy would come and say to you, you're going back to Quebec. So right. I didn't want that to happen. Well, you tell a lot of great stories in your book, After the Second Snowfall, My Life on and Off the Ice, about your time in the juniors. 
Mm-hmm. But we're going to move now into the NHL, and I encourage everybody to get it. You will. Some of the stories are just fantastic, like the chocolate sauce story. <laughs> there are some great stories in there about how you know you learn to play, what it was like playing with the Aces, the Junior Canadians, the Peterborough Peets, the challenges you faced getting from your home, uh, taking the ferry getting to the arena, getting back, your your off-season jobs and how that actually helped you stay in shape, um, you know, making sure there's food on the table. Your mom always made sure that there was food on the table for you. But I want to move into the pros. And um, your first year with the Flyers is when one of those overlooked incidents happened it's really, it's something that I don't think many people know about. The roof blew off the spectrum. So you didn't even get to play your home games at home. I think you played in New York at the Garden, in Toronto at Maple Leaf Gardens. What happened? Tell us about that. Well, you know, right before that, Warren, there's a story that probably wanted to, one of the toughest decisions that I ever made in hockey was when I made the decision to go with the Flyers when the roof collapsed. Before that, I was playing with the Aces. I was leading the league in scoring by about 30 points. I had six hat tricks. I was going for a record seven hat tricks. There's 14 games to go in the season. The Flyers have 17 games to go. The Flyers called me up because guys were injured. They said, Andre, we want you to come play a game with us in Pittsburgh on a Saturday night. I fly to Pittsburgh. We tied the game 1-1. I scored the goal on a breakaway against Les Binkley. The next night, we play a game in Philadelphia against the Minnesota North Stars. We win 7-4. I have one goal, three assists. They named me the first star of the game. Monday morning, I go see Bud Poyle. I have my bags in my hand because in Quebec, I have a chance to beat the record. I knew we'd win this coin tile. I had 30 points up. And I said, we have a chance to win the whole thing. And Bud Poyle says to me, he said, you make the decision. You stay here or you go to Quebec. Instead of telling me, go to Quebec. If we need you, we'll bring you back or we want you to keep me, keep you here. He said, I want you to make the decision. And I didn't have time. I, I probably had five minutes to make a decision because I was getting ready to go on a flight to go back to Quebec. And I was thinking about that. And I said, you know, I've always dreamed to play the NHL, not in the American Hockey League. Exactly. I was going to you know? go there. And I said, with 14 games, 17 games to go, this might be, the, first of all, the last, I would say the last 20 games of a season in the National Hockey League are the toughest one. Because either you try to make the playoff or guys are working for contract for the next season. So I said, the experience I would gain playing with the Flyers is probably a lot better than winning the scoring title in Quebec and beat the record. And I said, then I said, I'll probably be with the Flyers next year anyway because of the season I had with Quebec. And I said, then there's a booster club in Quebec City that had bought me a car. Okay. So I decided to stay with the Flyers. And I talked about this for years and years and years. And then one of the home games that we played was in, at the Coliseum, in Quebec City. Ah. And that's when the Booster Club gave me my car with the Flyers uniform on. 
Oh, that's nice. You know, so nice. And I said, I didn't know they would treat me, you know, leaving for Philadelphia. They were upset at the Flyers, but they were not upset at me. So when I went to Philadelphia, I said, I had two great games. And I said, the fans were loved it and everything else. Then everything disappeared because the roof collapsed. Too much snow. And I said, <laughs> no, we play our own game in New York, Toronto, and Quebec City. So I didn't have a chance, basically, to really meet the fans in, in Philadelphia. Well, it must have been, you know, sure, it was probably a decision that that was maybe difficult to make, but it was the right decision. It like was the right said, decision. The decision isn't to go, I want to be a player in the AHL. I want to be a player in the NHL. And, man, you know, 18 games, you had six goals and eight assists, and then you play a full year with the Flyers, 56 points, 58 points, 42 points. Then they trade you to the Blackhawks where you have, you know, it just I, wasn't the same with the Blackhawks. I didn't even dress some of the games there. Yeah, and then you move on to the Philadelphia Blazers. So one of the things that you did throughout your career was you negotiated all your contracts yourself. And I, I just find that absolutely fascinating. You're in the big time. You're not in the AHL. You're, you are in the National Hockey League. It's time to get an agent, but you didn't. Instead, you represented yourself. You surrounded yourself with good people from an accountant to a tax attorney mm -hmm. to a good banker. Why did you decide to represent yourself? And you did so for your whole career. How unusual was this? And why were you so comfortable in doing so? I, I did it because I grew up respecting people. I grew up, I believe the reason I played hockey is because the fans paid my salary, to be honest with you. I owed something for the fans. I figured that if the owner is willing to pay me whatever amount of money he pays me, I need to help him hopefully make some money as well. Otherwise, there'll be a lot of players that will be out of a job. So I think that's why on the other side, if I didn't have the season worn that I did when I played, I probably would have had my lawyer negotiate my contract. Because I had such good years, I was in the driver's seat. Like, that's why every year that I became a free agent, I, I could decide who I wanted to play. I had some, I had quite a few options. If I didn't have a good season, I would have needed a lawyer basically to find me a place to play hockey. Sure. sure. And the other thing is, another reason my lawyer, he charged me by the hour. He didn't get a piece of my contract. Okay. And an agent normally, He'll negotiate, but you don't know if he's negotiating in good faith or not, to be honest with you. And then that's why a lot of players had bad relationship with the ownership because they never knew the whole thing, the whole situation with their agent. Even at one point, when I was ready to retire, I talked to my attorney and my accountant. I said, why don't we go into representing players, the three of us, you know? And the reason I decided against it, Warren, because there's no loyalty on the part of the players. Yeah. Because mm. the players could go to a bar, an agent would come to him and say, you know what, 
I know a team that will pay you X amount of money and they probably will move. Yeah. I said, I don't need this, you know. Do you think that a player, the way the game is structured today, could represent themselves in the way that you did? I think it's no. too complicated. No, 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 no. I, I couldn't do that today. No yeah. way. I'm the only one. Howard Baldwin, who was the owner of the, uh, the New England Whalers, uh, the Whalers, and um, Howard t- said to be, he couldn't believe, he didn't know, and he negotiated my own contract. He says, to this day, he says, I'm the only, I, Andre's the only player I know that negotiates his own contract. Interesting. But there's no way in the world that could survive. And they, that's one of the reasons I'm not in hockey anymore. I wanted to coach so bad when I retired from hockey. And I really believe one, one of the reasons I didn't get a job is because I didn't have an agent. Because when mm-hmm. I played, the agent represented the players, the coaches, and the job managers. And if you look around the league in those days, most of the guys that were represented by Alan Eagleson, they got a job with teams because Eagleson ran the league, basically. Right. And I didn't want to go with Eagleson because Alan Eagleson had Bobby Orr as his main guy. Then he had a bunch of lawyers that represented the rest of the guys. I said, I don't want John Doe to represent me. If I go with you, I want Eagleson to represent me. Sure. And he could do that. Okay. So I said to myself, wait a minute. Every time I tried, I called Pat Quinn when he Pat coached the uh, Kings in LA because Pat landed my house in Philadelphia one year. I said, Pat, I would like to get back into hockey as an assistant coach to start with. He says, Andre, he said, I've got two assistant coaches I have to take because the team, they, they can't play anymore. And the people, the team owed them money and they told me I have to use them. I called Bill Deneen when Bill coached the Flyers. I said, Bill, I said, if you could give me a shot, I would love to do that. He said, Andre, they told me who my assistant coaches would be. Oh. Then Jacques wow. Demers. Remember Jacques Demers? Yeah, sure. Jacques okay. Yeah. Jacques Demers called me because he knew my relationship with Howard Baldwin and Howard owned Pittsburgh at the time. And he said, Andre, if you could talk to Howard about me. And he said, you know, he said, I don't think that I don't think National Hockey League likes likes French Canadians. But he said, huh. he said to me, he said, if I get a job, he said, I'll bring you with me. Okay. So I call Howard, you know, and he would Jacques would call me and then then he finally got a he got a job in Detroit. I believe at the time, Jacques Demers. I tried to call him. He wouldn't take my phone call because I re- I was driving down the Jersey Shore from Philadelphia, from Hartford, and from Phil- I'm sorry, from Philadelphia down to Wildwood, and I hear on WFAN that Jacques Demers just got a job with the Detroit Red Wings. Mm-hmm. Now that he got a job, he forgot who my name was, <laughs> and then. I was a very good friend with Mario Trombley. Mario played for the Canadian, good player. Yeah. And I think Mario he was said to me, too. Yeah. Mario said to me, said, Andre, don't feel bad. He said, he did the same thing to me. And I said, you see, so you can't trust people. Yeah. That, I, I really want to stay in hockey, but I, I never, I, I tried everything I could, to be honest with you. But because I didn't have an agent, I believe I didn't make it. Interesting. Well, again, I encourage everyone listening to today's podcast to grab a copy of Andre's book because he takes you through his negotiations and the kinds of clauses that 
that you put into your contracts. If I score this many goals, I'm going to get this bonus. If I get this many goals, I'm getting this bonus, so forth and so on. Very clever. You did you did very well. Hey, um, when you left Chicago and you went to the World Hockey Association and the Philadelphia Blazers, Tell us about the creation of the league and your first year in it. Was it what you expected? Um, Did you ever regret, at least in the beginning, leaving the National Hockey League for the World Hockey Association? At least in the beginning, because later on, you talk about how proud you were that you made it every year in the WHA. But in the beginning, you had to have some question marks. Oh, listen, I knew the reason I I fought so hard to make sure the league was successful because I knew I was blackballed in the National Hockey League. I, w- I was sure that the National Hockey League wouldn't take any of us at jump league because don't forget, by jumping league, we increase the salary of everybody in the National Hockey League. Because sure. otherwise they would lose our players. So they were not happy with us. So that's why I said I did. I was a, I was the president of the Players Association one time in the WHA. And when we had a meeting, I told guys, I said, guys, don't t- the, the lawyer want to get more money for meal money every day we're on the road. I said, that's not important. As long as we get our paycheck and we get our pension plan, that's what's important. Getting another $10 more a day on the road won't make any difference to the players. Let, because if the if the team cannot afford it, they'll fold the team and they'll say goodbye. I don't need this, to be honest with you. So the team that the, what scared me the most at the start, to be honest with you, was the fact that I didn't know if we're going to a town we're going to have a place to stay because I didn't know if the team paid their bills the time before, or if they paid for the bus to transport us someplace. You know that's what makes you nervous. You don't. You always hope that you're going to finish the season in one city. But in those days, when the people bought the franchise in the WHA, they didn't pay a lot of money. They probably paid maybe $50,000 for a franchise. They were gambling that they would get a good crowd and make a few bucks. So in those days, you didn't have to be a millionaire to own a team in the WHA. Today, you have to be a billionaire to own a team in the National Hockey League. That's the difference. (laughs) Yeah. Not a millionaire. You have to be a billionaire today. Listen, I have a kid, a friend of mine that lives in my hometown, and he just signed a contract with the Bruins. He went to Yale. He was going to be a junior at Yale because they didn't play this year. Last year he was drafted by the Bruins. But two weeks ago, he just signed an entry contract with the Bruins. Okay? the first Your first contract when you sign in the National Hockey League is $950,000. Wow. Okay. When I signed a contract with Rick Park for six years, I made about $100,000 more than that for six years. Wow. And he signed for one year, $950,000. He gets, it's a, it's a contract that gets less. He goes in the minors, but if you, and he probably get maybe 300,000, whatever he gets, but $950,000 a year. Yeah. Come yeah. on. It's, but it's you know fun. what though? I'm glad I played when I did. I would want to play today. The kids are not having fun today. It's mm-hmm. not a sport anymore. It's a business and sport second. When I played, we loved the game. We knew we were going to get paid. We get well paid for the time we played. Don't take me wrong. 
People ask me all the time, said, Andre, with the years that you had, if you played today and you had the same type of year, what would you make? Probably nine, 10 million a year, probably. Okay. But you could tell that the way the game is played has changed completely, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. I'm watching a game last night at, on TV, and then I think it was Washington. I'm not sure. And nobody's, ch- nobody's touching anybody. It's almost like don't don't hurt me because I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to lose my contract here. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah, yeah I see that. You know, as I look at this, this question, just popped into my head. As I look at the different teams that you played for in the WHA, and I, I have a couple more questions I want to ask. I appreciate you spending so much time with me. Oh no, no problem. I'm happy to do it. Um, you played for Philadelphia. You played for the team in New York. You played for San Diego. Amazing, they had a team in San Diego. Like we said, you played for Hartford and New England. You are from Quebec. How come you never played for the Nordiques? I've been asked that question many times, okay? When I was, I would say before I signed with the Whalers, I got a phone call from Quebec. They say, I was a free agent. They want me to come to Quebec, but they didn't want anybody to know it. So I go to Quebec, and we met in a, someone's house because they didn't want the reporters to know. Jacques Plant at the time was a coach in Quebec City. So I go to Quebec, and I get I make them an offer, and I said, one of the things that I wanted in my contract was you had to buy me a house of my choice in Quebec City. And I, I always, and by the bridge in Quebec City, there's a beautiful place. You're on top of Vermont, of the hill, and you see the St. Lawrence River. That's where I wanted to buy. I want them to buy me a house. And mm-hmm. I said, um, and I told them what the amount of money that they wanted. And Jacques Plant said, okay, that's not bad. Let me talk to the people about it. And in those days in Quebec, the team was owned by the people. They were owned, they were not owned by one person, they were owned by a lot of people. And I said, Wow. I get on the plane to go back. They said, it'll get back to me. And I was, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest with you, you know? And they said, um, we can't give you that kind of money because we don't pay anybody else that kind of money. But I said, you have to look at my record. You have to look at what I've done. And you, I you're said, the, you know, you, I you're the, the all-time thing. leading scorer in the World Hockey Association. And I said, I could do the same thing in Quebec. I've done it in the American League and I've done it in junior, you know? So they wouldn't pay me the amount. So when I went to Quebec two years ago to get a special award on my speech, I said two things I said to them. I said, I know a lot of people, a lot of you probably wonder why I never played in Quebec. And I told them the reason I never played in Quebec is because we could never come to an agreement. I said, the second thing I want you to know, I said, I'm very proud to tell you that I'm still Canadian. And I'm still proud of Lozon, the small town of 18,000 people that I grew up in. I said, that's what I'm, I'm proud of, you know, because I didn't want them to think because I played in the States. I've always, I, there's no way we'd become an American, to be honest with you. Okay. Because I, I was born a Canadian and I'm proud of it. And I said, I have a visa, I have my green card and I'm happy, you know, but we, we just can come to an agreement with Quebec. That's why I never played there. Andre, I want to know what really happened with the Whalers. I think what happened to you, the way I perceive it, wasn't really a fair thing. 
You were playing with the New England Whalers in the WHA. You had a good year. And after they were absorbed or merged with the NHL and became the Hartford Whalers, you were suddenly left out. What really happened there? I think what happened was the, uh, they went with Larry Poe, I believe, was a general manager at the time. And uh, he had his own ideas as far as what he was going to do. Um, I don't think he liked the older players on the team. Even at one point, to be honest with you, when Gordy retired, you know, and Gordy and I were very good friends. And um, he was going to go on the ice to have the kids. And Larry Poole told him, uh, we don't, there's too, enough people on the ice. He wouldn't let Gordy go on the ice. So I remember when I went to camp, Warren, my last year, you know, as you get older and you had success, you, you don't want people to say, oh, my gosh, she can't play anymore. You don't want people to say that. So I, I got myself in terrific shape. I was ready to play. But as you get older, you need game situation. So during training camp, we had exhibition game. And he would say, Andre, we're going to dress the kid to see what he can do. We know what you can do. Ta -da -ta. And at one point, I said to them, I said, you could sit somebody else. I said, I need to get my, my game shape. I need to get on the ice and feel the puck and feel my teammates and everything else. So I could see the writing on the wall that they just didn't want me to, they didn't want to play me. And I felt bad because I said, you know, I'm very proud of what I'm doing. If I couldn't play, I would be the first one to tell them I'm not, I'm done, you know? So at the time they owed me basically that year plus two more years at $175,000 a year. And I said, to tell you honest, guys, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to quit. I said, if I have to sit in a stand for the next three years, you're going to pay me $175,000 because you couldn't trade me. I had never no trade contract. So I said, either you do that or we could come to an agreement. So I, I worked a deal with them. Well, instead of paying me for two and a half years or three years, they pay me over a period of seven years with interest. So I could have a chance to see what I want to do with my life without hockey. And then he asked me to do the radio with Chuck Caden, who I love to do. I love to do commentary. I love that job. And we did for about eight years together. And after eight years, the reason I stopped, because they came to me, they said, we want to go in a different direction. I said, I don't believe that. I said, show me a letter. I said, that's people are not happy because you see, Chuck was a good cop. I was a bad cop. I said, I'm not, I was not a homer. I, I said the way it was. Sure, if a guy scored a goal, it was not a good goal. I said it, you know, and someplace, one time we were, we had a game in Quebec city and in Quebec city, you know, they have talk show every night on the radio there for two hours and they always want me on because they know I'll be honest. And one time, one of the questions they asked me before the game, the night before the game was, what are the strong points and weak points of both the Quebec Aces and the Arthur Whalers? And I told them what they were. Well, it was a beautiful night out and people in Hartford could listen to the show on the radio from Hartford. Oh, boy. Well, they called one of the players and told the player that I told them how to beat the Whalers. I said, that's not what I did. I said, if I did that, then I should be a coach. I shouldn't be a, a color analyst, you know. So they took me off because players complained that I was not positive enough. 
Interesting. Wow. Well, Andre, I I have so thoroughly enjoyed our conversation tonight. You have no idea. Anytime. Well, I, I just want to wrap it up with these last couple of things. Sure. One of the things you said a few times in your book was that you don't regret leaving the NHL and going to play in the WHA. And I, and I believe that, obviously. In fact, you're pretty darn proud of what you accomplished in the World Hockey Association and that you were there for its entire existence. Talk about that. Talk about what makes you so proud to have played in the WHA and that you don't have any regrets in leaving the National Hockey League. Another very good question. I have no regret to leaving the National Hockey League because the way I was treated in Chicago, to be honest with you. Um, I thought if the way, if the Flyers would have had to, if they would have done the homework, they could have traded me, but they wouldn't have traded me for Rick Foley. They would have got something better than that, to be honest with you. So that's why I have no regret of leaving the National Hockey League. And the reason I'm so proud of the WHA for two reasons. First, you know, I had a lot of success, but also I was one of the founders of the WHA. I was one of the guys that risked everything, basically. Knowing that my career in hockey was probably over if the WHA didn't survive. So that's what I'm very proud of, that I played all the seven years, being the all-time leading scorer of the league, and try to promote the league, try to get guys to join the league. To me, that was awesome. That was awesome. It is. What, what, a, what a career. Andre, you had a magnificent career. And I love this. Um, to cap it all off, you were inducted into the WHA Hall of Fame. How honored are you to be in it? And how surprised were you to find out there actually was a WHA Hall of Fame? Well, I was proud for, you know, for two reasons. First of all, to be one of the guys that helped the WHA survive and also being the all-time leading scorer, that record can never, never be broken. Never. Okay. So the fact that they recognize the fact that I've done more than just scoring goal, I promoted the league as much as I could, to be honest with you. I was always positive. I was never negative about the WHA. And to this day, I'm proud of telling anybody that wants to hear it that I'm very, very happy that I played in the WHA. Well, the WHA was certainly lucky to have you. Andre, your book, absolutely terrific. Tell people where they can get a copy of your book. They can get the book to Amazon. Uh, the other way, they, if they want, they won't be signed. But if you want a signed book, they can contact me on my Facebook page through Messenger, and I'll get their information, and I'll mail them a uh, signed book. And I can promise you, everybody listening, Andre will get back to you. Because oh, that's yeah. how I found Andre. I'm so happy I did. And you could always contact me as well. And I'll get your information to Andre. Andre Lacroix, the all-time leading scorer in the history of the World Hockey Association. An absolutely terrific hockey player. A Hall of Famer. Thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure, Warren. Anytime. I enjoyed it. 
Thank you so much. My pleasure. Before I read Andre's book, I really wondered if he had regretted his decision to leave the NHL and go to the World Hockey Association. I really found it surprising how many times in his book he said he didn't and how much he enjoyed his days playing in the WHA. I just wonder what kind of career he would have had if he stayed in the NHL and the kind of points he would have amassed. He certainly made his mark as one of the greatest to ever play in the World Hockey Association. And how the Whalers just suddenly turned their back on Andre the year they joined the NHL is a mystery to me. He was a star for the team. Their last year in the WHA, Andre scored 32 goals and had 56 assists for 88 points second only to a much younger Mark Howe, who led the team with 107 points. Then, Andre was relegated to a part-time role. Over the course of the summer, his skills certainly didn't diminish to the point where you go from second on the team in scoring to basically never playing heck. Dave Keon, at the age of 39, was still a regular for the team, as was Mr. Hockey, Gordy Howe, at the age of 51. But that's how they handled Andre, and the Whalers' first season in the NHL proved to be an unceremonious final year of the career of Andre Lacroix. But what a career it was. Between the NHL and WHA, Andre scored 330 goals, and added 666 assists for a total of 996 points, just four shy of 1,000. Broken down further, he scored 79 goals and added 119 assists in his NHL career. His 251 career goals in the WHA are fourth all-time, while his 547 assists are first, and his 798 points are also first. Very big numbers. He also played in more games, 551, more than any other player in WHA history. And of course, he's a member of the WHA Hall of Fame. What a career. You can get Andre's book, After the Second Snowfall, My Life On and Off the Ice on Amazon, or wherever you get your books. And if you go to sportsfh.com now, send me a note. I will let you know how to get an autographed copy of the book from Andre himself. That's sportsfh.com. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'm heading out to the golf course. The 2021 Masters will be on the tee, so it's a perfect time to talk about one of golf's forgotten heroes. The 1941 Masters champion, the great Craig Wood. That's next time. For now, thank you again to my special guest, Hall of Fame center Andre Lacroix. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.